0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program.
1: We must have you around sometime. We're divils for the must-haves in Ireland. It's a kind of an invite, vague and lacking a specific time and date. An invite that may never actually result in having the invitee around to your house. When I moved to America four years ago, I was struck by the very specific nature of invites I received from new neighbours and colleagues. We are having a barbecue at 5pm tomorrow. Why don't you join us? Or, are you free on Saturday at 1 o'clock? We'd love to have you around. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that we Irish are less welcoming and friendly than Americans. It's just I've noticed that their approach to new people tends to be more direct and forward. I saw it, too, and how many of our American friends deal with service providers, doctors, and schools. During the pandemic, the Washington DC schools closed for almost a full year, and when they reopened, it was only on a phased basis, with a small number of in-person places, the students chosen at random. Our youngest daughter was really struggling with virtual learning, an issue that we had raised with her school. But when the in-person places were allocated, she didn't get one and we were devastated. You can't take this lying down, our neighbour Emily told us. Stop being polite Irish people and start behaving like pushy Americans. She said we should demand a place for our daughter. You can be sure that's what all the other parents are doing, she said. We sent the principal. A polite email expressing our disappointment and saying that we would be very interested in a place should one become available. Not quite pushy American, but a notch above pushover Irish. It worked and our daughter got a place. When it comes to being more assertive and forward, I think there are big differences between Irish people and Americans, but there is also so very much that we have in common. Shared cultures and historical links that are celebrated on both sides of the Atlantic. As RTE's Washington correspondent over the last four years, being Irish has certainly helped me when it comes to getting access to the corridors of power. The annual St. Patrick's Day celebrations provide a diplomatic opportunity for the Irish government that is the envy of small countries around the world, and the Irish journalists covering it all also get close to the VIPs, the President vice-president and senior members of Congress. But it's not just on St Patrick's Day that being Irish has its benefits. After Joe Biden's election win last November, I shouted, question from Ireland, as the president-elect walked past a group of reporters. He stopped to speak to me, saying, oh, you can ask about Ireland anytime you want. In the moments leading up to that election, I would attend Donald Trump rallies At some stage in the night, he would inevitably point to the press section at the back of the arena and say, look at the fake news media down there. And on cue, his loyal supporters would then boo loudly in our direction. After the rally, I would have to approach those same booers to ask them for interviews. But as soon as I said I was Irish, frowns would turn to smiles and they would happily speak to me, usually telling me about some distant relative that had immigrated from Ireland years before. After Donald Trump's election loss, however, there was a change in tone from his supporters. I could sense anger and hostility at the Stop the Steal and Million MAGA marches that were held to object to Joe Biden's election victory. The demonstrations culminated in the storming of the Capitol building in January and the protesters I encountered that day didn't care that I was Irish. I was a member of the media and in their eyes, I was the enemy. Whether it was the Capitol riot, the Black Lives Matter protest movement, or Donald Trump's chaotic handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, I saw a lot in my four years in Washington. I had a front row seat on historic, world-changing events, but I was an observer from another country. It was different for my US colleagues and friends. Like my American cameraman Murray, who after a tough day would shake his head and say things like, man, I don't know what's happening to my country. or our neighbor Natalia who burst into tears of joy after Joe Biden's election win was confirmed. I was covering these massive stories, but they were living them. America has been through a lot over the last few years. So much division, so much anger. But their hope, optimism and confidence will continue to help them overcome the toughest of times. My term in Washington is now drawing to a close and I'll be leaving the US in the coming weeks. My family and I have been saying lots of goodbyes to the wonderful American friends we have made here, telling them all that we must have them around to our house when they visit Ireland.
0: For many people, autumn is immortalised in the words of John Keats. Season of mists and mellow fruitfulness. Not for me. In fact, when I hear those words, I am more likely to think of Bridget Jones, incorrectly quoting them as mists and mellow fruitlessness, while rowing a boat opposite Hugh Grant's Daniel Cleaver. For me, autumn is immortalised not by Keats, nor indeed Bridget Jones, but rather in the words and worlds created by one of the greatest writers of all time, Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron has been my heroine and her words my scripture for as long as I can remember. I've always thought that had we met, we would have been friends due to our shared love of books, New York, pasta and the season of autumn, or fall as Americans call it. She began her career as a journalist in New York and later forayed with aplomb into the world of screenwriting and movie making. She loved New York with a deep ingrained passion. She liked to wear black. She felt bad about her neck. And she wrote the screenplays for some of the most iconic romantic comedies of the 80s and 90s, such as Sleepless in Seattle, When Harry Met Sally and You've Got Mail. She wrote essays, newspaper articles and screenplays right up until her death in 2012. Over the years, I've come to appreciate the breadth of Nora's literary work, but my love affair with her started when she transported me via screen to New York in the fall. I first watched You've Got Mail when I was 12. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks were suitably charming in the lead roles, but it was Nora's idyllic New York that captivated me. In When Harry Met Sally, Meg and Billy Crystal walked through the glorious golden shades of Central Park, they dress in cosy woolen jumpers, faded jeans, boots and warm coats. Their dialogue is as clean and as crisp as the autumn air around them. Nora seemed to know exactly how New York, and indeed any city in the autumn, should be. Carved pumpkins in every shop front, warm fairy lights in window displays, trees with leaves of uniform orange, people talking about bouquets of sharpened pencils in quaint bookshops. When I first visited New York aged 17 in October 2007, I was delighted to find that New York in the autumn was every bit as magical as Nora had depicted it. Watching these movies makes me, in the words of Nora, want to buy school supplies. Not for this Galway girl the Spanish arch on a sunny day or a rooftop bar in the summer. Give me the cold autumn sun rising over the cladda, the smell of leaves and smoke in the air and people wearing thick jumpers under long coats. For some, the definition of autumnal would end at a change in the seasons and leaves on the ground. It signals the end of summer fun, the looming end of light and the arrival of dark mornings and nights. But for me, the darkening days are brightened by the world Nora Ephron created in her iconic autumnal movies. When John Keats' mists descend and then rise, they raise a curtain on a fresh, bracing new world, cleansing us of the summer's hedonism and preparing us gently for winter. Autumn signals the start of the school year, with minds opening each September to exciting learning adventures. The world in autumn is ripe, and as F. Scott Fitzgerald once said, life starts all over again when it gets crisp in the fall. There is no doubt in my mind that Nora Ephron felt the same. Nora's body of work is prolific, and her legacy on the world stage as one of the greatest writers of all time is secure. She couldn't have known all those years ago that her movies would embody the essence of autumn, though I suppose for many they don't. But for me, when the leaves change and the season of mists descends, I know it's time to get a blanket and a cinnamon candle and let Nora's movies further enhance what is undoubtedly the most wonderful time of the year.
2: Why does it seem so
3: inviting?
2: Autumn in New York It spells the thrill of first nighting
4: The epic Rags to Riches story of the Irish in America is made up of millions of individual tales of human anguish and achievement for those who crossed the Atlantic in the 19th century in search of better lives for themselves and their families. I was reminded of the anonymity of the vast majority of Irish immigrants a couple of years back when I was invited to speak at an event in the state of Utah to mark the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad on which some 12,000 Irish workers labored for years in trying conditions to bind Americans together across that vast continent. It's in the nature of history that most of its participants are hidden from view because, like those railroad workers, they leave behind little or no documentary record of their lives. Of course, there were many Irish immigrants who graced the grand staircase of American history, Waterford's Thomas Francis Marr being prime among them. He was one of the best known Irishmen to settle in 19th century America and has the unusual distinction of having his life celebrated on two continents, in Ireland as a Romantic revolutionary and in America as a Civil War general. I have visited the Antietam battlefield in the state of Maryland where Mars' image adorns the Irish Memorial at a place where he led the Irish Brigade in a battle that is now known as the bloodiest day in American history. In 1867, Marr's life came to a mysterious end on the Missouri River in Montana. But today, his equestrian statue stands peacock-like outside the state parliament in Helena, where I viewed it during a recent visit, when I was also shown a photograph of the throngs of enthusiastic spectators at the memorial's unveiling in 1905. But why was such a fuss made about someone who spent less than two years of his life in Montana, and was only ever acting governor of that vast area in the northern part of the United States? Marr's starring role in today's Montana has much to do, I believe, with another Irishman who made a major mark on his adopted home. Marcus Daly was born in Ballyjamestuff, County Cavan. In 1841 and left for america as a 15 year old settling in new york before moving to the west coast where he became involved in mining daly's career really took off when he acquired the anaconda mine in butte which was part of what Daly dubbed the richest hill on earth from which vast quantities of copper were extracted thus marcus daly the champion of Montana's large Irish community became a mining magnate, but his throne was hotly contested. An extended arm wrestle developed between Daly and another mine owner, William Andrews Clark, in what became known as the War of the Copper Kings. The two were as different as chalk and cheese. A Catholic Irishman up against a Presbyterian from Pennsylvania Gregarious self made Daly jousting with the austere university educated Clark. Their protracted struggle was seen as a green versus orange affair as Daly stubbornly stood in the way of Clark's ambition to become a US Senator. Their rivalry came to a head when the time came for Montana to choose a state capital. Daly favoured Anaconda, a predominantly Irish town which still hosts the only Hibernian Hall west of the Mississippi. His rival Clark campaigned for Helena. In a hotly contested referendum which pitted Irish residents supporting Daly, against those of other backgrounds led by Clark, Helena got the nod, but accusations of skullduggery were rife. Marcus Daly, who also had a passion for thoroughbred horses, was a very wealthy man when he died in New York in 1900. His prominently-located statue in Butte by the Dublin-born sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens testifies to the high regard in which he was held in a town that was once one of the most Irish places in the whole of the United States. I suspect that it was Marcus Daly's achievement in rousing the Irish in Montana into a political force that resulted in Thomas Francis Marr being put on his lofty pedestal in historic Helena. Daly was honorary chairman of the group that campaigned to erect the Marr memorial. The Irish may have lost the argument about where the state's capital ought to be located, but they made sure to get their man Marr his permanent place in the sun. In an ironic twist to this tale, Clark's son donated his extensive book collection to what is now the William Andrews Clark Memorial Library in Los Angeles, which, among other treasures, houses a large selection of material connected with Oscar Wilde, who toured America for 11 months in 1882. Wilde spoke in places as remote as Leadville in Colorado, another haunt for Irish miners, where he is still celebrated for his performance at the local opera house. But alas, he never made it to Montana. I would like to have been a fly on the wall, had Wilde found his way to Butte and parlayed with the formidable Marcus Daly, the Copper King from Cavan. <laughs> This
2: is from Cirrus Self-Portrait, a longer poem tracing my family's history living near Tornado Alley in the U.S. state of Kansas. Cirrus Stratus Cumulus Nimbus Curl, layer, mass, and rain. My grandfather and his brothers passed the time stretched on soft grass, looking up at clouds falling on the strength of currents. The game went, can you see it? With a finger tracing the outline of shoe, wheelbarrow, snake, or horse, forming the broad leaves of the swamp white oak. My mother links me to these people and this place. She taught me that a cellar door is for sliding, but also for hiding if you see the tail of a tornado touch down in the distance, and what it means to be a people of acceptance in a dusty landscape, the ones who build and rebuild.
5: When Benjamin and Miranda Guinness lived in Farmley, among their many regular guests was the legendary publicist Eleanor Lambert, known as the fairy godmother of American fashion. A tireless promoter of the industry and a close and powerful friend of the Irish designer Sybil Connolly, Eleanor spent every Christmas Eve with the Ivies before the carols in St. Patrick's and every August with Connolly in Marion Square. Eleanor's reputation and energy were formidable. For more than four decades, from the 1940s, in the span of a 75-year career, she ruled the fashion world almost single-handedly and brought international recognition and status to the American fashion industry at a time when the French were considered unassailable. She founded the Council of Fashion Designers of America... She invented the concept of the Charity Fashion Show and New York Fashion Week, now a twice-yearly fixture on the international calendar. She was also an early supporter of the famous Costume Institute at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Beyond the world of fashion, she was dedicated to the Save Venice campaign, the city where she had met her husband, the Hearst journalist Seymour Bergson. She loved Ireland, she said she felt enveloped here, and told me that in the 1960s she tried to buy a house near Dublin, but it didn't work out. There were Irish connections in the family. Born in Indiana, she was the granddaughter of an Irishman called Robert Emmett Craig. Originally, she wanted to be an artist, but moved to New York in 1928 with just a few dollars in her pocket. There she found work promoting artists like Jackson Pollock and George Bellow and helped found the Whitney Museum of American Art. Her career in fashion began when an artist who also made clothes asked her for promotional help. One of her most celebrated masterstrokes was a glittering ball in Versailles in 1973, which she organised with French socialite Marie-Hélène de Rothschild. It was a sensational show that cost $50,000 to stage and generated $282,000 for the restoration of a room in the palace. To everyone's amazement, American designers, such as Bill Blass, Oscar de la Renta and Halston, outshone their French counterparts, stealing the limelight from rivals like Yves Saint Laurent, Pierre Cardin, and Givenchy, it did wonders for the reputation of American design. She not only furthered the careers of American designers, she had an eye for spotting future stars, but was also the force behind the Best Dress List, an expanded version of a Paris Best Dress List that was suspended during World War II. She ran it for over 50 years from the early 40s before handing it over to Vanity Fair in 2002. It was a social history, a record for posterity, a record of the tastes of the time, she told me, when I interviewed her in Dublin in 1992. She was then in her 80s, but we struck up a friendship, discovering mutual interests like theatre. I would take her to the gate or the abbey when she was in town. And she kept insisting that I come to New York Fashion Week. I did eventually take up that invitation, an experience never to be forgotten. It started in her Fifth Avenue apartment overlooking Central Park, a coveted invitation that traditionally fired off the New York collections. Any show I wanted to see, any designer I wanted to interview, access was granted immediately. Eleanor, always dressed dramatically in her signature turban and oversized glasses, had a formidable network of friends and associates. There wasn't any significant fashion figure, celebrity or wealthy socialite on either side of the Atlantic that she didn't know. After one of the shows that season, we would a coffee together. I was planning a trip to Thailand later in that year to do a story on Irish nuns making fabrics and asked her if she would any contacts there. I know the Queen, she replied, but it might be difficult. Her opinions and stories were always sharp and entertaining. She knew Coco Chanel very well, recalling the designers celebrated lunches during Paris Fashion Week. She hated other designers, and lunch would go on until 3.30 and I would miss a show, she told me, which was exactly what she'd intended. Her hands were like claws when she touched you. It was as if she was fitting clothes. She used to describe how important fitting a sleeve was, she told me. Eleanor's lifelong close friends included the aristocratic French designer Hubert de Givenchy, John Loring, creative head of Tiffany, and, of course, Sybil Connolly, whom she first met in 1952 and whose clothes she considered world-class. She and Loring would regularly join Connolly in her green Bristol and set off on jaunts around Ireland visiting friends. Her last visit being for her 90th birthday party in Dublin. Eleanor died in October 2003, two months after her 100th birthday, outliving Connolly by five years. My last communication from her was a fax thanking me for sending Connolly's obituaries. Miranda Ivey had the last word. She had an incredible appetite for living and was so generous and full of wisdom, a good judge of character. She was the sort of person who helped you get on in life and fight setbacks. If she believed in you, she gave you her soul and her heart. She was an icon, really.
6: A butcher in County Donegal took an order for a free-range turkey this October. The order was not from a very organised Christmas shopper, but for an American family who are newly moved to Ireland and need to create a piece of home. In many towns through Ireland, American citizens will celebrate Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving Day, the fourth Thursday in November an all-American occasion of family, friendship and gratitude. The strange thing for me is that although we were American-born and had our early years in Ohio, this day isn't strong in my memory. Maybe because it's so near Christmas, and for our parents, who had left Ireland from Cove when they married in 1957, the thought of having two huge turkey dinners so close together was too much for them. It was not part of their psyche. they didn't understand it, and in the way they couldn't understand peanut butter and jelly or iced tea. And Mum couldn't see the charm in cutting a pumpkin open and making the slushy orange contents into a pumpkin pie. It didn't rank in our Irish traditions, but saying grace before meals was always. Part of our family rituals. My parents didn't make a fuss of Thanksgiving Day, but when we lived in the States, we regularly enjoyed large meals on Sundays with family and Irish friends. Auntie Jerry served roast beef dinners cooked blood rare, sweet potatoes, squash, and German chocolate cake for dessert. The only family we had in the States was Auntie Jerry and her husband. Their closest friends were either Irish born or first generation. They all were building American lives, deeply rooted in being Irish and they were grateful. The 60s was a time when emigrants to America could thrive and so Dad, having left West Cork at 16 for a post office job in Letterkenny, became a stockbroker in Cleveland and he loved his job. In the evenings, we kids used to stand on Clifton Boulevard and wait for the bus bringing him home from work downtown. When Dad stepped down off the bus, I remember his heavy winter coat and the sound of coins jangling in his pockets as he pretended to chase us up the sidewalk. I remember Mom getting his white shirts ready for work, all crisp and starched. And then the first time I saw her iron a blue shirt and later a yellow shirt, as the men's office fashion slowly changed. We were American children who learned in kindergarten how to hold our hand over our hearts and recite the Pledge of Allegiance every day at the start of class. We knew every word of the national anthem and could fold the flag into a triangle shape without touching it to the ground. We knew of Christopher Columbus arriving with the ships the Nina, the Pinta, the Santa Maria, and how the first pilgrims landed on the Mayflower. We knew of Thanksgiving, and on the run-up to the holiday in school, the corridors and classrooms were decorated in autumn colours and a cornucopia of Thanksgiving images. They say that the United States is such a hodgepodge of so many countries that the Founding Fathers had to create a new culture with traditions that were uniquely American to hold it all together as one nation. We knew that President Lincoln proclaimed in 1863 that the last Thursday in November would become a national holiday. And we were very aware that the holiday meant that we got two days off school. That I do remember. A time to watch the Macy's Parade and American football on television. My parents didn't do the whole turkey feast for this November holiday, but they did share times with family and friends. They were more than grateful for their life in Ohio. They were thankful. The only Thanksgiving Day that I really have any memories of wasn't even celebrated by my family, but by our friends, the Fredos, with their Irish-Italian roots. In 1968, the kids began a campaign for weeks beforehand and eventually persuaded their parents to have a uniquely different Thanksgiving meal. They decided it would be a special treat if they all went to McDonald's on the day. And so, on the national holiday, they headed off for their meal, only to find that in those days, all the McDonald's were closed for the holidays. Then, as they drove away from the darkened place, they realised that all the grocery stores in their neighbourhood were shut. In the end, they went home and cooked two packets of macaroni and cheese and five hot dogs coated in yellow mustard and pickles. They made root beer floats and had frozen popsicles for dessert, a meal held in memory. And as they sat around the set table and before they ate their holiday feast, they bowed their heads and prayed, grace before meals, and gave thanks.
3: On this morning's programme we heard Farewell to Washington by Brian O'Donovan Bouquets of sharpened pencils by Mary Coleman The Copper King from Cavan by Dan Mulhall current Irish ambassador to the United States From Cirrus, Self-Portrait, a poem by Grace Wilentz, Eleanor Lambert, Fashion Queen by Deirdre McQuillan, and Thanksgiving Day by Denise Blake the music this morning was Come On Up To The House by Tom Waits, sung by Willie Nelson with Cheryl Crow and Lucas Nelson. Autumn In New York, sung by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Montana Love Song by Wiley and the Wild West. Episode by Bill Frizzell. And Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, performed by the Los Angeles Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. You can find more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture
0: you've been listening to the sunday miscellany podcast for more from us you can follow the program on facebook twitter spotify or apple podcasts just search for rte sunday miscellany